Welcome, everyone. I just wanted to start off that I have no disclosures. And I work for the DOD, so I have to disclaim that the views presented to this are my own and not those of the DOD, Army, or DHA. These are our learning objectives today. We're going to start off by going over just some basics in regards to communication. Um, and then Jamie is going to talk more about pain neuroscience, some of the metaphors used, and how to incorporate it with your patients. And then we're going to spend the last third of the uh, talk really going through patient engagement and some strategies that you can use. So I went to a neuroscience talk a couple months ago, and it was given by a physical therapist. And what I was really surprised by was the first three quarters of the day was actually spent on communication. As a pain psychologist, I wasn't expecting that. Um, but I think when you are presenting information from a pain neuroscience perspective, how you are in the room, the words that you use, and the different strategies are different. Um, and we're going to go through some of that today. Another thing that struck me was when I was traveling here. So I think communication is sort of a, a lost art these days. I'm in the airport, and everybody is like this. Right? They're on their phone. Think about the last time that you had a phone conversation with someone. Right? You just text. We email. We're on social media. But we're just not as, I think, connected with really talking with people. So think about communication. It's really a two-way street. Right? You have to be present and curious as to what the other person has to say, and they have to be curious of what you're saying as well. And oftentimes, when we're in treatment with our patients, there are different barriers that can come up. And so I want to spend a little bit of time talking about that today. Communication matters in the sense that your outcomes are better with your patients when they feel heard. They're less likely to maybe sue you if you have a good therapeutic relationship. So it really makes a difference on how, if you're connected with the patient, uh, if they feel like you understand where they're coming from. And they will keep telling you the same story over and over and over. Anybody notice that? Until they feel like you really understand what they're saying. I like to think of um, interactions with patients as being like an iceberg. So our perception of their experience is sort of the tip of the iceberg. It's a very small percentage of what is actually happening for the patient. So if we don't really understand their reality, which is all below the surface there, then it's hard to make accurate treatment recommendations. Um, it's hard to really direct them to what we think would be helpful. So we want to be, again, I keep coming back to this curious, but you want to be really interested in their understanding of what's happening, what they think are their, you know, the right treatments, what are their expectations. There's often a mismatch there in pain management. Um, so it's really important to just recognize that you know, we're viewing the situation through our own lens. We have our own agenda. We have our own beliefs, expectations, and understanding. So we have to be aware of that and start to be curious about what our patients are thinking, believing, and what they want. So the barriers to communication are twofold. We are part of the problem, which also means we can be part of the solution. Um, so we have provider barriers, and then we have patient barriers. 
So no, we're not perfect as providers, right? We try. But some of the things that really contribute to our barriers are burnout. I'm giving a talk later today with Corinne Cooley on provider burnout and just the prevalence across different disciplines working within the field of pain management around burnout is so high. And so we take that with us. Think about the patient that you're seeing on Friday at 4.45. If you've had a difficult week, which I'm guessing everybody in this room has, right? You see a lot of patients, we have busy clinics, there's a lot of expectations, it can be challenging at times. We can take that frustration with us into the room with that patient, certainly if we're not aware of it. So, you know, we've got stress and fatigue and burnout that is part of what makes, you know, our interactions challenging. But then also the setting that we're working in. I mean, how many patients do we have to see? How much time are you spending in administrative work versus patient care? All this contributes to your own level of frustration. Some disciplines receive a little bit of communication training. Um, I know in, um, when I was going through school, I was, I was talking to Jamie about this last night. When we had to practice learning therapy, we would be videotaped. It was horrible. It was just the most stressful experience. But it was so helpful to see yourself, the tone of your voice, the words you're using, your body language. Like, what are your tells? So that you could start to understand what that looks like. But that also takes a lot. You know, not all disciplines get that level of training in communication. And then a lot of the medical field um, is sort of taught this professional-centered communication style where you're the expert in the room. The patient is coming to you because you're an expert in your area that you work in. And so I'm gonna talk about why that is a little bit of a problem in the shift that is happening um, with pain neuroscience education. And then there's patient barriers. So right off the bat is expectations. They're coming in to see you, most likely, because they want a diagnosis and they want a cure. And what you're providing them with is maybe a diagnosis, self-management strategies. They want the pain gone, and you want to help them function. So there's already a mismatch. There also can be a lot of fear, right? They worry that the pain they feel actually signals damage in their body. Um, and past negative experiences, I hear this a lot when I have patients that are gonna be sent to physical therapy. I went to the physical therapist and they hurt me. And so they're worried about going back. They're afraid to come see me in general because like, I'm not crazy, I'm, I don't think you're crazy. You know, so there's a lot of barriers, misinformation that they bring with them. Also the stage of change that they're in, you wanna make sure you match the treatment approach with whatever stage of change they're in so that you can really optimize their experience. And then their health literacy, there's cultural factors, there can be language barriers. There's just a lot of things to take into account. Also the culture you come from, the beliefs you have, also influence your interaction in the room. So just recognize this is a two-way street. We have our own stuff. It's helpful if you know what your stuff is. And it's helpful if you can recognize what your patient is bringing in as well. So I mentioned this professional-centered uh, communication style. I, I like this little cartoon. They had a tendency to talk past one another. This happens when the provider in the room 
views themselves as the expert who is going to then tell the patient what to do. Now, you are an expert in your area of specialization, but I think what we forget to take into account is that the patient is an expert in their experience. You don't know what they're experiencing. You never will. Even if they explained it from now till the end of time, you will actually never truly understand their reality. So what we want to be able to do is not talk at them, right? Because what happens? Think about the last time you were in a conversation with someone where it was just one-sided. You're just being bombarded with information. You tune out, right? You stop listening. If you feel invalidated or unheard, you stop listening. You can see how that would be a problem uh, with our patient care. So what we want to do is we want to adopt this patient-centered communication where we're really, really, really listening to what the patient has to say. We're curious. We want to understand what they think, why they're behaving the way that they are. And this can be more challenging when you see unhelpful behaviors in the room. The patient that comes in that's angry, it's really easy to react to that, but what happens if you take a, a mindful step back and you just become curious? I wonder what's underneath that. The person who is so fearful or you know, whatever they're bringing in, just being less emotionally reactive to it and just more curious. Like, hmm, it's like you, it's, it's impersonal. It doesn't have to affect you. You don't have to respond to it. And patient-centered communication really helps us to collaborate, like truly collaborate with the patient on the treatment plan. Invite them into understanding what's happening. Invite them into you know, what the next step might be. Because they're the ones who actually have to take the step. Yeah. <laughs> It's not always this obvious. <laughs> I wish that it was. Nonverbal communication is often neglected. Think about the last time that you were having a conversation with someone. You're listening to their words, but their body language doesn't match what they're telling you. What happened? You're suspicious. That doesn't seem right. I don't trust this person. So it's not just our words, right? Come, you know, running into the room and and you know, you're saying all these things, but then you're like looking at the clock and you're fit. You know, I mean, that body language is gonna, the patient isn't gonna feel heard. So we can pay attention to their body language and we can start to notice our own body language to make sure it's all matching. So these are some tips for effective communication. Um, then I'm gonna turn it over to Jamie. Uh, this is what we call the Stanford Five. So whether you're a physical therapist, psychologist, or medical provider, you ask the patient these questions. So from their point of view, what do they believe the cause of their pain is? I had a patient that had just been diagnosed with migraine, and she, when I asked her, what do you think is causing your pain? She said, well, my dad developed headaches, and then he had a brain tumor. They didn't catch it, and he died. She didn't think she had migraine. It was a very important moment to understand where this person was coming from. So she had to have more information, sent her back to her neurologist. She had an MRI, she, she doesn't have a brain tumor, but that was her belief, that's what she was walking around with. So we also look at sinister beliefs. Do they think there's something going on in their body that's dangerous? 
What is the impact that this is having on their life? Like, what have they given up? What can't they do? And what do they think is the correct treatment? If they think it's surgery and we think it's rehab, there's a problem there, right? And then what are their goals? This is the why. What do they want to get back to doing? Thank you. We have so much to learn from our pain psychology colleagues on the communication we have with our patients and how we can more effectively communicate with our patients. So I'm going to start touching on the neuroscience education approach from a PT standpoint. If there's one take-home point to everything that we're going to say today, it's words have power. And the way that we deliver those words are going to directly impact the treatment that we have or the success we have with our treatments with our patients. So I've been a PT for a while now, and I'm guilty of having a patient come in with low back pain and telling them, don't do X, Y, Z, because this can make your pain worse. It's happened. What do you, th do you think that made like, them more successful in managing their pain? No, I probably created an avoidance behavior just by giving them that education. So the way that we educate our patients on what's going on with them from diagnosis, prognosis, and treatment expectations, it's all going to influence their future progression through treatments. So if we take a patient who's been diagnosed with degenerative disc disease, we're pretty immune. We're kind of numb to those words. Those are words that we see probably every day in a chart, maybe most of your charts. And those words don't really elicit fear out of us. We're comfortable with them. We understand them. There's nothing that comes to us for those words. But a patient who's not familiar, who's coming in to see you with back pain, Degeneration, what do you think that word elicits? What feelings do you think they get from that? They think it's progressive, they think it's getting worse. Like the end result is death, right? That's where their brain goes. The same with disease, like most things when we hear the word disease, we don't think of a happy long life. We think of things that cut life short, things that cause suffering. So just the way that we educate patients on their diagnosis, it doesn't mean that we're downplaying what we're telling them and educating them on what's going on. It means we have to educate them further so that they truly understand what what's going on with their body and what they can do to make changes. So when we think about this application to placebo and nocebo effects, we know that there's a direct effect in how we educate on the treatments to influence treatment expectations. There have been some studies on medications, and if patients end up with a positive expectation, we can double the analgesic effects of medication. And if they have a negative expectation, then you can lose the whole analgesic benefit. So your words have power, and you can set treatments up for success, and you can set treatments up for failure. So we want to think about that in like the application of sending someone even to PT. So if you see a patient and they have degenerative disc disease, the big scary word, and you tell them, oh, I'm going to send you to physical therapy because, you know, you have degenerative disc disease, you know, I think you're still going to have pain, but they're going to teach you some ways to deal with that. And then they come to my clinic and go, like, well, they said you're not really going to be able to help me anyway, but I'm here. And so how much buy-in am I going to have with that patient? How much am I going to be able to elicit a behavior change? So making sure that we're setting up not only our treatments for success, but treating the whole treatment team and working together to really get the positive benefits that we want. So from a pain neuroscience approach, there are lots of ways that we can implement this. The whole approach of pain neuroscience education is changing patients' perception of pain. We want them to understand that pain is not necessarily a bad thing. It's not the end of the world. It's a protective mechanism. And when it goes on persistently, that's when the alarm system is no longer serving its beneficial effect. If, you're a, if you have appendicitis, you need to know. You want to know so you can seek help to get treatment, resolve the issue. 
When we have pain that persists on for longer, though, that's when the alarm system isn't working effectively. And we need effective communication strategies to make the patient feel validated and understanding what's going on and also feel like they have power to change the situation. So these are just some examples of how we can implement this education style. The fire hydrant approach some may not be familiar with, so I'll expand on that just a little bit. Um, that's kind of where you, kind of how it sounds, just rush them with a whole lot of information all at once. And you kind of explain A to Z, everything that's going on in the brain, everything going on in your tissues, and you just kind of blast them with information. That can have an effect in like a group setting where you're going to have close contact and follow up with them often. I've seen that work well in like an FRP type setting. When we're seeing patients like on a one-time basis, trying to just overload them with that information, you're going to get the glazed look real quick and then you're going to have no follow-ups to kind of reinforce what you've started to teach them. So following up with kind of those individual short stories and metaphors that we're going to kind of give you some take-home examples that you can start to implement in the clinic. There are also a lot of online resources now. There's both free and things that you pay for. If you happen to be connected to the DOD or VA, there's now a free workbook, and they've changed a lot of the metaphors and um, kind of stories to match a service member history, things that they would understand. There's talk about the war room being the pain meeting. There's lots of different cool things, um, and it's a free resource. So things are coming up more and more. So the sensitive nervous system, that's one of the very first stories. And oftentimes I hear providers have a version of this that they'll tell. Um, if you have that patient and they have a sensitive nervous system, perhaps you're calling it central sensitization, maybe it's just persistent pain, maybe you notice that they have some hypersensitivities as you're doing your physical exam, this is a place where you can implement this type of alarm um, education story. So we know that we have house alarms to protect us from burglars, from fires, Things that come in that are a threat, breaking a door, busting a window, we want that alarm to go off. Tell us somebody that's not supposed to be there is there. It becomes an issue if the alarm goes off every time a leaf blows off of the tree and brushes up against the house. Now we have a nervous system alarm issue and we need to address that so that we can get to any kind of tissue issues that may be underlying. So educating patients on how they're perceiving pain can be beneficial in getting them to engage and tolerate more activities if they can understand what's happening. Other metaphors that are common in this approach um, is the pain as the lion. So if there was a big, scary African lion to enter the room and it's roaring, probably we're not going to stay sitting nice and calm like we are now. There'd be a reaction. So it'd be like, you know, the mass hysteria that we always hear about. So people would be trying to run out the door, whoever's the fastest wins kind of thing, fight or flight, you know, get out of here. And so that's kind of how pain is affecting our patients. And if we can change the perceptions of pain and take down some of the threat and improve their perceived perception of safety, then we can turn the pain into more of like the little baby cub that you can kind of pet and play with. And it's not as big of a scary thing. And then I really like the tsunami example because the tsunami, things are not going to be the same after that tsunami hits, right? There's devastation in the future and it's completely out of our control. We are at mother nature's will and that's often how our patients are feeling in this pain, persist, persistent pain experience that they can't control. And so if we can kind of change that perception and recognize that life is not a fluid static state, that we want that dynamics of ups and downs and we want to figure out how we get that resilient zone and float somewhere in the middle and ride the wave, right? Turn it into a positive perception. So another way we can directly challenge their, their processing of information. So nerves send information to the brain. The brain has to assign meaning to that information that it's getting. Similarly, we have vision. 
and we process light, our brain assigns meaning to that, and we have all been tricked by some kind of visual optical illusion at some point in our lives. And there are a whole bunch of like great break the internet techniques right now that are happening that you can implement in the clinic. Um, I've used the, the, do you hear Yanni versus Laurel, and the dress. Some people see white and gold, some people see blue and black. I, I won't survey you guys to find out. But if I have a group of about six or more, guaranteed I'm going to have at least one that thinks the opposite of the rest of that group. And so just using that as an example to talk about how our perceptions are influenced by everything that makes us who we are, that can be a powerful learning tool. And then the, the little ball in the corner. It may not seem like it's moving to you all at all. Um, and it's very small right now. So in a bigger picture, it kind of is a little more interesting. But I like to use that trick with some of my service members who are kind of like very confident that they don't have any issues with dealing with stress. And you know, yoga is not their jam. So if they can't slow that down and get that ball to stop moving, then we need to talk about mindfulness. And so we can do some education around that and kind of open up the conversation to getting into relaxation. So this is another um, tool that I like to use in clinic. Um, it is not as fancy as what this looks for you guys. It's usually just a big circle and a whole bunch of arrows. Um, with pain neuroscience education, one of the punchlines that we want them to understand is that pain is an output from the brain. So you can see the descending arrow, pain coming from the brain. We do have tissue information traveling up to the brain. So our nose deception, danger messages, all the information, information from the tissues is traveling up. And then we have lots of different things can, that can affect our experience. So affect our perceptions. So I'll usually have them draw about 15 arrows in, and this is an interactive experience. I want to know from them, what do they think can be influencing their pain? And they'll, sometimes they'll be enlightened enough to say emotions, stress, sleep, and things that we all know influence a pain experience. And so then it's kind of like finding the low-hanging fruit. If they're bringing it up, it's already in their consciousness. They've either heard it from somewhere else or they're familiar with things going on in their lives. And that's kind of our low-hanging fruit. That's where we know like they may be most open to those types of behavior changes first. So um, some highlights there. Sleep, of course. Um, I think we're all getting very familiar that sleep's kind of like the volume dial. If we're not getting quality sleep, it's going to influence our pain experience. Memories, I think, are very important. Um, it's kind of have positive and negative effects, right? The take home on this that I always like to bring up when I'm presenting to other providers is medical advice. So if you have a medical advice where you go and you see maybe an orthopedic surgeon and they tell you never run again, only swim, you have arthritis, that's gonna have an effect on that patient beyond what we perceive in that room at that time. When you take away something that somebody loves, there's an emotional experience that's gonna happen with that. And so educating them on their diagnosis, I try to educate my patients when I'm having, I'll put this, we'll discuss this with patients, especially if they've been given a lot of different stories from different medical providers, we'll kind of align that, well, that's frustrating, isn't it? That's part of this experience, being told this by one physician and this by another and this by another person, that becomes part of this experience. And it only increases their threat when they're getting so many different informations from different places. So kind of getting into understanding that that does play a role. And then the message delivery. So there are some punchlines that we want to make sure that we're delivering. We want to know that pain is an output from the brain. That's kind of one of the take-home messages within PE. We want them to understand that their brain has a lot of power in the processing of the information. There can be tissue damage that happens, and that information gets sent to the brain, but we have other tools in our toolbox that can downplay that, and we may not even feel the tissue damage. Think of like a high threat situation. If you were to trip and fall walking across the street, 
You might feel a hold onto your ankle there for a second, but if a bus starts barreling down the road, bet you're not going to sit there and hold your ankle. It's kind of that perception of threat. And so we want them to catch the balance of what all is going on in their life as a part of processing of all the information that makes them them. And then information that does come from the tissues. We don't want the patients to feel like we're saying it's all in their head. That is not what PNE is. We want them to understand that the brain is a part of processing information. It's most often there is a tissue injury that occurred when this all started, and then things have progressed over time. So we want them to understand that there can be tissue damage. There will be changes that happen in the tissues that are not the same as what they were when you're 18. We're going to have changes as we get older. There's changes that happen with injury, and that's a part of this experience. When they don't feel validated, like you think this is the, the, the takeaway from some of this, again, sometimes when it's delivered, can be, it's all in my head. They think it's all in my head. I'm making it up. That's not at all what we're trying to say. This is really a model that can bridge the gap between the biomedical and the psychosocial. Oftentimes, it kind of seems like we get divided where we practice one model or the other, and it's not. They're one model, and the brain connects us in both ways, and this is kind of a model where we can educate patients and play from both sides of that, that pond. So pain as an individual experience is another take-home message. We want them to know that their pain experience is theirs alone. It's not the same as their twin brother. It's not the same as the person sitting next to them. It's not the same for anyone. Your individual experiences are going to be a part of the piece that your brain pulls from the file cabinet outside of your consciousness, remembers all the things that have ever happened to you, remembers that time you fell off the swing, it remembers the time that you, you know, tripped and fell down a hill. It remembers all the things. Her brain and her body are really cool. But this makes it a little bit challenging because you never know. Like Heather mentioned before, the tip of the iceberg, we only see what they want us to see, essentially. It's the same. We don't know what all their previous experiences have been. Some of them are not open to sharing about adverse events that have happened in their life. Some of them have become very comfortable with burying them down and never talking about those again. And so making sure that they recognize that everything that makes them who they are is going to be a part of how they're going to process this. And then the pain is real. So Heather and Corinne are going to do an awesome talk later on burnout. Um, I see a lot in my, my military world, patients who are going through a medical evaluation board sometimes get categorized into that, oh, they're just trying to get all the benefits that they can get. And there is a secondary gain issue, but we have to go into this encounter and meet with these patients expecting that you know you don't know their life story and they're very well maybe worried about their financial safety and their financial safety of their family and that safety threat ratio can be the tipping balance for a pain experience so if there's more threat than safety in their lives then that can be a part of why they're experiencing pain so making sure that you go in with an open mind and keep that open communication and recognize that any pain experience is a real pain experience and we need to figure out all the components that are contributing to that for that patient. And then making sure that the message that you're trying to deliver is what they're receiving. Like I said, some people will walk away from a pain neuroscience education encounter and think, oh, they said it was all in my head. There are some great um, five, understand pain in five minute videos. There's an Australian version. There's a DOD VA version. I think that one's six minutes long because they go into the pain scale. But um, they're good at educating patients on all the different components that go into a pain experience and all the different treatment avenues for chronic pain. 
but they can still walk away saying, oh, they're just saying it's all in my head. And so we need to make sure that we're having that good closed loop communication with our patients and we're reaffirming that the message that we're trying to deliver is what they're comprehending. And they're able to kind of repeat that back to you and tell you what they're learning from that conversation. Because you don't want to lose them on this because this is, this is a very broad way to communicate with your patients. And you want to make sure that they're feeling validated and that they're truly understanding this, I mean, deep topic. So we want to talk a little bit about patient engagement. Um, I was reading a really interesting article that came out in January of 2019 that looked at recordings of providers interacting with their patients. And they <laughs> I, I don't have the reference because I just read it this morning, so I apologize. Um, but I could look it up after if someone was interested. But what they mentioned was that if you actually asked your patient what they wanted, that seven out of 10 times you would interrupt them with. Is my mic on? Sorry. Um, that was interesting. I was like, oh, okay. So we'll move into patient engagement. Um, knowing your patient is really important. So. You know, this is the stages of change model. I, I, I'm assuming most people are familiar with this, but you really want to know where your patient is at in regards to change. So you can think of pre-contemplation as ignorance is bliss. It's not a problem. I'm not worried about it. Contemplation would be, you know, maybe they're sitting on the fence. They haven't done anything, but they're not completely ignoring everything. Preparation is maybe they're starting to think about making some of these changes. And then action, which is where we want all of our patients to be, is they're actually engaging in behavior changes. Motivational interviewing is a wonderful way to move patients from you know, one stage to the next. Um, it's also, it also teaches you wonderful communication skills of being able to hear what the patient is saying, feed it back to them, kind of using their own language, I know Jamie uses more colorful language with some of her military folks, whereas in the Bay Area, I might get in trouble if I do that. You know, so you kind of change how you interact depending on the language that the patients are using. And then you can have them feed back to you, like, well, what did you hear me say? What is your understanding of that? So that you're really understanding what's happening in the room. And you have a better sense of you know, more than just the tip of the iceberg. Um, you want to take this into account when you're referring patients. So if someone is in the pre-contemplation stage of change around physical therapy, and they only have a certain number of sessions that their insurance company is going to allow them to use, you may not want to send them to physical therapy. Um, and Jamie can probably talk a little bit more about why that would be a problem, but I'll just tell you the punchline. They're not going to do anything. You know, so this is where you can ask their willingness to understand. You can start that dialogue and start to plant the seed. Because you can plant the seed knowing that you're going to continue to water that. And eventually, hopefully, it grows. And so there's been some research that shows that they're at pre-contemplation, and then they're still there one month later. There's a 3% chance of them engaging in behavior change. Not awesome, right? They're in pre-contemplation a month later, they're in contemplation, it more than doubles, and obviously it just increases as they move along. But you really want to understand where they're at. Because if you're trying to do goal setting 
around behavior change and your patient is in pre-contemplation, that's a big problem. You're going to lose them. And they're right. You're not listening to them because you're not hearing what they're telling you, which is their story. So it's just important to know kind of where they're at. One of the barriers that we find that can slow the progression through the stages of change is fear. So we talked about how when we educate patients on their diagnosis, we can instill fear or we can instill safety. Fear is the path to the dark side, as Yoda says. And so when we can recognize that fear is a component of their experience, that we have more power to educate them and really change where they're headed, change their trajectory. So if we look at the, the model on the screen, um, you can see there's a nociception experience followed by pain, and then how they're going to change their behaviors. If there's a fear of pain, they're going to avoid that activity, going down kind of the red side, which gets stuck in that loop, and it generally does not lead to improved function, right? We know that it kind of gets more, the more things you give up, the more we decondition, the more things you avoid, the less activity engagement that you're doing, the less social engagement, and it's kind of a downward spiral that all feeds into, it, into itself a little bit. Versus if we can really identify what things are important to these patients, what do they want to set goals for, why is it important to them, then we can start to build a graded activity plan towards getting them to the things that matter to them, moving towards recovery, even despite pain being a component of their experience. If we let fear direct where we're going to go, we're never going to end up where we want to be. If Yoda says it, then it must be true, right? <laughs> I mean, let's just be honest. I think one of the other things to think about with the fear avoidance model is, again, it comes back to being curious about what behaviors they're engaging in that we recognize as fear avoidance. They might view it as coping. And I think this is where psychologists come in. This is sort of our bread and butter of really helping patients recognize, like you said, this was the why. You wanted to get rid of your pain in the first place because you wanted to do X, Y, and Z. And they'll say, yes, that's important. But this, this, I wouldn't call it an avoidance behavior, this behavior moves you away from that. So I'm confused. Help me understand how this is helping you move. So there's ways that you can help them recognize the impact of that fear avoidance cycle. Because when they're in it, I mean, Jamie knows, like they don't know that they're in it. Uh, one of the things you can also do is to prime. Um, you can prime for positive outcomes. So. I've had the luxury of working uh, with a couple wonderful physical therapists, Jamie being one before she left us, um, and Corinne uh, being the other. And what I will do when I see a patient that shares with me, I had a really bad experience in physical therapy. They actually hurt me. They didn't listen to me. They didn't believe me. I was flared for a month. Well, that physical therapist doesn't sound like the physical therapist that I work with they are experts in understanding chronic pain. They get it, this is all they do. And they really help patients to be able, you know, I have people that come in a similar story, but I've, I've seen a different outcome and they approach it differently. And I know that, you know, and, and I, I'll, I'll prime them for this positive outcome, letting them know, and, and luckily I'm not lying because this is all true, uh, <laughs> that helps. <clears throat> but really priming them for that positive experience. One, they are much more likely to show up for that appointment because they, feel, they trust me and they're going to trust what I tell them and I trust what I'm telling them. So you can prime them for pain psychology visits, for physical therapy, meeting with their medical providers, helping them. You hear what they're saying about these 
unfortunate experiences in the past, but you're letting them know it could be different. This could be different. And when the other thing I do is I, I let them know you need to tell the provider right up front what your fears are, what your experience was, and then I usually give them a heads up. Like, hey, FYI, this is something that happened. They're really concerned about this. You have to hear them out. They have to tell their story, and you need to really hear what they're saying. Um, we can also promote um, positive interventions. You know, if we have any stories of patients that we've worked with that have had a really good outcome with X, Y, or Z, we can prime them for that. And then encouraging them toward independence. So reminding them that it's not just about reduction in pain, it's about getting back to doing the things that you stated are important to you, the things that bring meaning and purpose to your life. And then addressing fears, we cannot ignore fear. We, we have to hear what they're saying and then address it. Because again, they'll keep telling you until you understand. And by processing the fear with them, even if you're not a psychologist, like just listening to what they have to say, uh, reassuring them that you understand where they're coming from can help. Because let's face it, who wouldn't be afraid of having constant pain? I th nobody wants that. And then remember the why. Why, they're doing, why they wanted to get rid of pain in the first place. The purpose of getting rid of the pain. So the activities that bring purpose and meaning to their life, right? The reason you get out of bed. At the end of your life, how, what do you want to have done? What kind of relationships did you want to have? You want to bring them back to that because that ends up being more powerful, I believe, than just getting rid of the pain itself. That's something that we definitely want to promote. So that's one of my goals. When I first have an encounter with a patient in our initial evaluation, I want them leaving with at least one tool that they can implement to change their situation. And this will depend upon their goals and upon their treatments that they've had previously. It could be a wide range of approaches. It could be diaphragmatic breathing. It could be some taping techniques. It could be like an actual graded activity plan that we're starting to work towards one of those big goals that they have. Generally with graded activity, we want to start really low and stair step up because we want to break that boom bust. They've generally most chronic pain patients have ended up on that roller coaster where they feel good one day, so they do all the things, and then there's that hard crash that can last for an extended period of time, sometimes a short period of time, but then we're back on the roller coaster. And I like to draw the diagram for the patients. That roller coaster, the peaks never tend to go higher with that ride. So we tend to have a downward trajectory towards function. And when I'm educating them on increasing activity, we want to start low, below what they know they can do on the bad days, and we start to do that every day. And then we can gradually increase their pain, increase their activity tolerance on whichever activity we want to set goals towards. And so it's more of a stair step back up. And then we want to promote neuroplasticity. So I currently work at Fort Bragg where we have a lot of airborne um, and special forces operations happening. And there's a lot of blast exposure and traumatic brain injury related to jump injuries and different things. And so this neuroplasticity education component bridges some of the programs that we have between the pain and the TBI program and really educates them on things that they can do, things that they can start to implement to change their experience. So things that we have always kind of recommended around exercise and healthy lifestyle and sleep, 
something I've incorporated more as I've learned more about chronic pain and dealt with more chronic pain situations is the whole body movements. Getting them doing things with the parts of their bodies that they've kind of started to neglect or not focus on. So I like to throw in some toe yoga and some short foot exercises even if we have nothing going on in the feet. And maybe I'll mix in some Tai Chi or some um, yoga moves within our treatment session. And I'm lucky to work in an IPMC where we have different providers of different um, backgrounds. So we have a yoga therapist. We have lots of different people to implement on our team. And then novelty and surprise. That's I had, that one's the one I probably value the most of everything and like to really push my patients towards. Whether this is creating something in the art realm, so painting, doing some kind of work with their hands, um, going on a hike somewhere that they haven't seen before, challenging, building new connections in their brain, things that they have not experienced before. Novelty is powerful in helping us build neuro, new neural connections. And so getting them to recognize the value in that. Getting them also to engage socially. If they, it's very common that our guys will start to isolate themselves. And so getting them to do things that engage them socially, whether with their family or with other people in their unit or just in population in general, a lot of them like to go to the woods and be alone. And so we've got to figure out ways that keep them engaged with society. And so um, volunteerism is something that we found to be very rewarding in our populations. Um, but you've got to find what the patient enjoys, what gives them purpose and joy, and drive that direction. And then focus and attention, making sure they're putting an effort to learn something new. And then getting curious. Like, this is something that I try to show them with my curiosity towards pain neuroscience, better understanding how the brain works, better understanding the whole integrity of the pain experience. We have so much to learn still, and so it's good to be curious, good to be trying to learn more things about what's happening within our bodies, within our brains, and how all of it's interconnected. Like the, the gut and the immune system have so much more that we're going to learn and know it. And so I like to stay curious, and me showing them my curiosity towards that just kind of puts a fire under them to start getting their interest. you spend enough time with the physical therapist, you'll know what toe yoga is. Who knows what toe yoga is? Oh, it's going to have to be a talk for next year. It's so hard. <laughs> so this was a really interesting study that came out in 2017 where they looked at a rehab facility that was undergoing construction. And what they found was that aesthetics really makes a difference in how people as far as it comes. So this was fascinating. We're talking about patient barriers and provider barriers and pain neuroscience education and all these different things. But patients, when they walk in to your dungeon, they have already, there's, <laughs> I hear some laughing. Apparently some people are working in dungeons here. Um, they already have this expectancy response, which affects their experience and their behavior. And so I thought this was really fascinating uh, and, and a very interesting study that came out with having windows and having it be bright um, and maybe removing those spines that have the herniated disc that looks like the worst thing in the world from the offices um, can actually make a difference in, in some of these outcomes. So this is another pain neuroscience education example that I like to use. And we all have mirror neurons. It's another cool thing that's going on in our brain. And so oftentimes, I'll use a more um, dramatic, typically, video for my patients, things that will really bring out the oohs and the ahs. <laughs> 
so that we can talk about what we're trying to get across there. So I like some CrossFit fail videos. I won't tell you which ones or anything, but I'll play this for my group of guys. And undoubtedly, there's lots of sound effects that come out of them. Oh, uh, and then some of them will just look away because they're just like, ah. But everyone has something going on. So I'll always ask, like, well, what do you think? Why do you think I showed you that video? And they're like, oh, because you're sick and twisted or you think, <laughs> you think you're funny. And so there's always some kind of joke that'll come in with that. But then I'll say, yeah, you know, I want you to use good equipment. I want you to use a spotter if you need a spotter. I want you to never work out in a gym with someone wearing a cowboy hat. And then I want you to think about watching that. Did you feel something just for a split second? Did something shoot through you? And oftentimes they can say yes. Generally people who are experiencing chronic pain, our brain will go through the process of information from what you saw. Your premotor cortex is gonna get activated. All this processing happens in your brain. Again, your pain neurosignature that is just yours will be activated if you're in a chronic pain experience. And then if the brain is doing all the things that should be happening, that didn't happen to you. So it's like a split second outside of our consciousness and it's gone. Sometimes some of our chronic pain patients, they'll say, oh man, I still feel that in my back. And you know, you have to say, well, we really need to talk about the way your brain's processing information because there's, there's a lot going on centrally if we're still feeling that because the brain should have come to the conclusion, that's not me, I'm safe, let's go on. But it's a good conversation point and it's just another way to educate patients. And then we can also kind of use this medical oddity. Everyone has probably fallen victim to like the, the contagious yawn at some point in time. And so we can also use this to our advantage. When we're communicating with patients, if we can kind of almost mirror their behaviors and mirror some of the ways that they're posturing themselves or the way that they're speaking, we can often build a relationship quicker with that patient. Now you do have to tread lightly in a lot of pain behaviors or individuals who are anxious. Those are not the patients that you want to try to mirror and reflect what, you're, what they're putting out. So I'm giving that disclaimer, but it is a strategy to try to build rapport. And like Heather kind of alluded to, I do use more colorful language with my service members. It seems to like break down a barrier of I'm just this girl um, provider and I don't know what battle's like, you know. It just kind of helps us build some common ground quicker. So. Now we're going to talk about a patient experience. And so about a month and a half ago, I had a patient who had lower back pain. And I would say his path to get to me was pretty typical. He went and he saw primary care. This is his journey over the years. He went and saw primary care. They said, oh, lower back pain, you know, do some PT. Goes to PT, learns, quote unquote, some stretches. Comes back, not better. He's like, okay, it's time to order an x-ray. So they order an x-ray. Comes back. He has some degeneration L5. S1, and so that's his current diagnosis. He believes there's one bad disc in his back. And then they send him to physical therapy again and also to orthopedics. Physical therapy, we do stretching, we add on some strengthening. Orthopedic surgeon does an MRI, says, oh, not only are L5 and S1 an issue, you've got L4 and 5 going on, and I'm gonna send you to pain management. So now he goes to pain management. The pain man and between that, he also had some complaints of neck pain as they went ahead and ordered an MRI of his neck. Now he arrives at pain management with an MRI of his neck and his lower back, and then the provider goes, you see this disc? This is your good disc, L3. It's good, it's pristine. There's a little bit of stuff going on everywhere else, but this one's good. And so we're gonna send you to see Jamie in pain physical therapy. You know, it'll, everything will be great. And so he comes to my office, he's sitting, he's all slouched. And I said, okay, well, what are you hoping to get out of today's visit? Well, I don't know. I went to the pain management doctor. I thought I only had one disc bad and then it was two. And now all of them are bad except for one. 
So I don't see why, what physical therapy is going to do. I've already gone twice before. Okay. So now we have to have a conversation about his understanding of what's going on with his spine and kind of and the best intentions by that pain provider. They wanted to like focus on the positive, but the perception of that patient did not carry through. So we had to re-educate on all the things that are in his control to change his trajectory. Because at that point, he kind of believed, well, I've been in the Army for 24 years. This is just what it's going to be. Army beat me up, took everything I got. It's just going to be the end of the, the story here. So thinks he's getting out. He's going to retire regardless, but this is kind of his trajectory. So we have long conversation and kind of understanding pain, understanding pathophysiology of what's going on in the spine and what degenerative changes mean, how we load the tissues, how we train the tissues to get things moving in a better direction, and all the additional things. Like we talked nutrition, we talked about a lot of different things, and then we kind of closed the loop by picking two things that he felt like he could choose to move forward on and start making changes. And he wanted to do physical therapy and yoga. And so that's where we started. He goes with, a, he follows up in about a week. He'd done his first yoga class. He had done his home exercise program once. And I'm like, okay, so how are you feeling? He's like, you know, I feel great. He's like, I don't know what it was, but the way that you talked about this stuff, like it changed the whole thing. Like, I felt like I have hope now and I can actually do something about this. So like, I think this is gonna work. And I'm like, all right. And so I'm like, you know, I'm talking about this like later this year, can I use your example? So he, he was willing. And so I didn't put any patient identifiers in there, but it's just powerful. And the common theme that I hear from patients after we do a pain neuroscience education and then really start to implement change that's directed at their specific mo movement dysfunctions is like, I feel like I have hope again. And it's a common theme. So it tells me like we really need to restructure how we're educating patients about what's going on with their diagnosis. So really what we're trying to do with pain neuroscience education is we're trying to instill hope add choice back into how the patients are responding to their pain, right? So we wanted, I put this up as just, there's, a, there's so many different things that we can provide our patients with. But again, what you're wanting to do is to instill hope and help them recognize that they have a choice in how they respond to having pain. We can do this through coping skills. Um, we can help them with their perceptions around their health. Using humor, we tried to use humor even today in the presentation because it's nice to laugh, it helps you feel connected, it makes it not so boring, not that this could possibly be boring, but exercise and, and, and get them intimately connected with what matters to them in their life, diet. I mean, there's so much that goes into this. There's so many opportunities for intervention. Pain neuroscience is not really a new thing, but pain neuroscience and all of its glory and all the things that I love about it is not a standalone treatment. This is when you're implementing to change patients' perceptions in order to get them to change behaviors. If you're not following this up with actual behavior change, you're not going to change the situation. You're changing it like transiently. You change it that their beliefs for maybe that day, but you haven't changed the situation for that patient. So we have to pair this type of education with actual behavior change. Thank you. <laughs> Oops.